You know, preaching stories uh, in the Bible isn't easy, and I, I commend Jim's willingness to engage in stories uh, week in and week out over the past few weeks. Um, and I pity myself <laughs> trying to do it only one week in the midst of all of this, so hopefully I can do as well as Jim does. Um, and as Jim has noted at various points in, in previous messages, um, we struggle to read the stories of Scripture well. Um, out of this struggle, we simply try to principalize or simplify or cut apart the narratives for the sake of logical assertions. We're very logical people. We want, uh, give me something to take away, right? Um, not necessarily an evil desire, but one that actually damages uh, the genres of scripture in which narratives present important truths in the form they take. Um, in fact, the stories tend to stop making sense as we stop honoring the structure of the tales. And this is actually a gift to us because we, are, we all have a story. We are storied creatures. We tell the story of ourselves, the story of our lives, our families, our jobs. Um, and as we read the stories of scripture, the narrative of our own lives that's often unpredictable, illogical, um, or embarrassing, uh, and frankly, all those things as much as any story in scripture, we begin to, to gain a sense of our own story as we read the Bible's accounts, the Bible's stories. By paying, by paying attention to the important bits of these stories, the stories of our own lives begin to make a little more sense. And in the midst of all of this, we see God. We experience God. And in Genesis chapter 29, our text for this morning, God reveals himself to us through yet another, I say yet another because this is often the narrative, the, the, the path that these narratives take. God reveals himself in yet another unlikely tale of his sovereign control of all of life's seemingly random, unpredictable, or heart-wrenching, terrible experiences. So Genesis chapter 29 is actually told in three scenes as the story unfolds. Uh, begins with some background material in the first 14 verses. Uh, it speeds up into a conflict or a crisis in the middle section, verses 15 through 30, and then resolves itself in 31 through 35. And this is often the path that these narratives take. There's background material, there's some sort of crisis, and then there's resolution. Uh, so as we read the stories of scripture, this is often the pattern that we can look for as we read them in order to gain a sense of what God is revealing in the midst of all of this. So let's take a look scene by scene at, at, at this story. Um, we're going to look at each scene together, and then we're going to conclude this morning with some points of application uh, to take away uh, from this story. So follow along um, as we, we unpack this text together. So we've already read it this morning, Genesis chapter 29, but let's not forget where we arrive at the beginning of Genesis chapter 29. We just have had an important declaration from Jacob at the end of Genesis chapter 28. Uh, he is, in many ways, taking his first steps in following after the legacy of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Genesis chapter 29 builds out of the tensions introduced by Jacob at the end of chapter 28. And after his vision of a ladder from heaven, J Jacob makes a vow to God. And in this vow, this acts as a kind of a, an, a preview of the kinds of things we should be looking for as Jacob's story unfolds, the kinds of questions we should be asking. Will God be with Jacob? Uh, 
specifically, will God bless his efforts in his journey to find a wife and raise up a seed, which is an important part of the covenant promises given to Abraham? Will God watch over him, providing food and clothing, very basic needs as he's wandering around in the desert by himself? Will Jacob ever return to the promised land? All, all important aspects of the covenant promises. So in this story this morning, we follow along and, and we practice walking out these same kinds of questions of faithfulness in our own lives as we, as we watch this section of Jacob's life unfold for us. So again, the first scene this morning uh, begins in, in verse 1 of chapter 29, and it's simply a background. And very simply, Jacob arrives at his destination and finds his family. We see that in the first 14 verses. So Jacob arrives at his destination and finds his family. So again, Hebrew storytelling follows uh, similar patterns, familiar patterns. There's background, there's crisis, there's resolution. So these verses uh, set the scene for what follows and establishes a trajectory for coming events. Uh, those of you who know me well, you'll understand this illustration. Imagine it like the scrolling text of Star Wars. It gives you, it gives you background. I mean, it's not the point of the movies, but it's essential background material in order for you to understand what lies ahead, or any prologue to any movie you can think of. There is very important material that we mustn't miss in order to fully appreciate the conflict and resolution to lie ahead. So what details are important? What shouldn't we miss here? Well, consider the location. Um, Padan Aram, also called Haram here in, in the text that I read this morning, is the ancestral home of Abraham. Uh, while partially an affirming answer, to Jacob's worry about God's watch care over his life. We also know, because we know the full story, that Jacob's presence here in this land will not be without its fair share of heartache, disappointment, and pain. So in many ways, this location is a kind of, there has kind of a double meaning. It serves as an indictment in some ways of Jacob's past behavior and a warning to the reader that should arouse us to both worry and comfort. Worry at what might happen to Jacob, because again, he's, in a, he's, in a, he's far away from the promised land, but also comfort as we read through. I mean, this was his destination in the end. This was what he was looking for. So God provides direction and help. Um, do not forget here that, that God called Abraham actually out of this place into another place. So Jacob, in some ways, the text is telling us, is it reversing that call? So he's going backward even more, as I think has been reminded in other stories. A movement east in Genesis is originally made in the context of judgment, as in Adam and Eve's case, or vanity, the Tower of Babel, or alienation in Esau's case, all previous stories of, of, of the east being mentioned. Also, the, the Old Testament continually describes Canaan as a physical indication or location of God's covenant blessings and presence with the people of Israel. As Israel's history unfolds uh, as a story of perpetual idolatry and disobedience, God ends up as a kind of final statement of his judgment, casting them out of the land and into a foreign land, into exile. So the physical location of God's people provides a tangible, irrefutable, irrefutable testimony of their covenant faithfulness. So here Jacob's presence in the land of the eastern peoples reveals a journey in some ways, away from God's covenant promises because of his own deception and disobedience. It's a reminder of what Jacob has actually been like in the previous narratives. He's not been a, a really great guy. 
But it's also a reminder that God mysteriously and miraculously still provides a way forward. But yet we're still we're asking these questions. How will God respond to this? What's going to happen? We don't know what lies ahead. Will God go back on his covenant because of Jacob's behavior? Or even for us, it's a hinting at the behavior that lies ahead in Laban's case. No, this physical location forms kind of a double confirmation of God's faithfulness, but also faithfulness in the face of, of man's sinfulness. Also consider the characters uh, we meet and how they're introduced. Uh, Jacob, Rachel, Laban. So we've gone over how the setting of the story outlines both promise protection and kind of a double, double meaning of an indictment of Jacob's deception. Uh, but also we, are, we meet important characters. Uh, the, the, as the story unfolds, we begin to believe that these are the, the central <laughs> figures of the story. Jacob arrives uh, by a well with a stone where herdsmen gather their flocks. Uh, this should al- already kind of raise in our minds a kind of similar story of a previous man searching for a bride who happens upon a well. So there are these kinds of narrative devices to help us remember the faithfulness of God. Uh, Jacob is hopeful in the midst of this discovery. I mean, it, it means a lot to him that he's happened upon this well. Um, Jacob saw the country, the well, the sheep in verses 2 through 4. He saw the stone, a narrative reminder in many ways of the stone of Bethel from chapter 28, a symbol of God's covenant promises. He saw Rachel, the daughter of his kinsmen. Could this be the bride he was looking for? This is what the background is doing. It's building anticipation. Jacob sees Laban's flocks. And indeed, his uncle looks prosperous and blessed. Jacob begins to see the possibility, maybe, that God's blessing his endeavors. We begin to see the possibilities of God blessing his endeavors. We also meet Laban, who races out of his tent at the very mention of his sister's son. There's an excitement. He embraces him. He grabs him. He kisses him. He opens his home to him with great hospitality and welcoming. He kisses him. What great hope we have for Jacob. Each of the characters introduced, Jacob, Rachel, and Laban, play a critical role in the coming events. And in many ways, the story begins on very positive tones. We think, wow, this is actually going to work, right? This might work out. How cool. But the, introdu- the introduction in many ways asks, raises an important question. Will these strong family bonds, surely, I mean, this is a pretty positive introduction. I mean, can this really, this positive vibe carry all the way through the story? Will these family bonds remain this strong? I mean, that's pretty strong. It's pretty nice stuff that Jacob's going through. Also, there's, there's important dialogue that can't be missed here. Uh, Typically, Hebrew stories, they don't have this long, I think of Tolkien, drawn-out narratives. Anybody who's read uh, Lord of the Rings has these very long, like, I get lost and confused um, with one kind of dialogue that's happening, pages and pages and pages. That's not how Hebrew Hebrew stories work. Uh, In fact, the the narrative is, is kind of incisive and very direct rather than expansive. Um, And... In straightforward questions and answers, in fact, here between the shepherds and Jacob, uh, we learn all just the essential information that we need to know. So what do we learn? Uh, Well, it's not a chance meeting that Jacob happens upon some shepherds that know Laban. Uh, God is working and providing for Jacob. Uh, Laban has been blessed. So Laban's doing pretty well for himself. He has flocks. 
Um, he has a daughter, obviously. Uh, he has some kind of offspring, some family. Um, and again, as we read this, we gain confidence in, in God's provision for Jacob. And again, the questions come up. Will God watch over Jacob? Will God give the same kind of blessing and promises to Jacob? In fact, when, when Jacob, Jacob's concern for safety and making his vow, and later in the chapter, uh, in verse 21, uh, it's, it's the same word that, that's used here when Jacob wonders, maybe, just maybe, if Laban is well, is blessed, that that word that the text uses for Laban, is Laban well? In Jacob's question, it's the same question that he asks later in the text. It's kind of a well-being. Will Jacob be okay? If Laban's okay, maybe I'll be okay. The positive answer, in fact, to Laban's prosperity receives an immediate physical manifestation. Laban's beautiful daughter, Rachel. Uh, Much in the same way that Rebecca appears to Abraham's servant going looking for a bride in Genesis chapter 26, that other marriage narrative that shares so many similarities. So does Rachel just kind of appear? And the conversation kind of pops up um, very, very just abruptly. In this background scene, then, there's a slight resolution. We begin to feel a very positive sense of how this narrative might unfold. Um, Jacob's journey away from his mother, away from the danger of Esau's wrath. Um, the story appears to resolve some of these problems. <coughs> Questions of provision, of God's presence, uh, of success, and a search for a wife gain real possibilities in this background material. And I imagine Jacob takes great hope in how things might unfold. (coughs) Yet, the next scene, in verses 15 through 30, we're presented with a, a pretty big crisis in the story. Laban, hinted in this background material as a protagonist, as a kind of a hero, someone who will help Jacob, he quickly becomes a villain and, and a, an enemy of the covenant holder, Jacob. We face the question, can man's sinfulness, man's deceptions, deter the covenant of God? Follow along with me then in, in, in scene two, which gives us the crisis, verses 15 through 30, where scene two we see the deceiver is deceived. The deceiver is deceived. So again, we've gone over some background material and reviewing important dialogue, important characters we meet, the place. Here, the second stage, we can't avoid this this crisis that that brings all those positive feelings, the hope, to a screeching halt in many ways. The deception surrounding Jacob's marriage to Laban's daughters. Indeed, the escalation of the events to follow are hinted at how quickly things escalate, because verse 15 moves us ahead one month. It just says, he was there a month. And that's an important indicator, like things are happening at a very rapid pace. So watch out for what's about to come. The brightness and hopefulness of the background in, in many ways becomes a distant memory as we're immediately trans, like, transported a month ahead. We're, we're brought right to the crisis. And here Laban reveals his true character and Jacob's future seems in, in real doubt, especially as Jacob sees it. So in this section, verses uh, 15 through 30, there's this ongoing dialogue, if you look down through the passage, between Jacob and Laban that threads its way through just intermittent details and commentary, and serves as kind of a background for the ironic turn of events that happens in Jacob's life. 
so after a month of labor, uh, Laban proposes out of the kindness of his heart um, that Jacob receive wages for his work. And Jacob already, uh, the kind of conniving sense of, it's probably interesting to imagine these two interacting with one another. Uh, you can see the wheels turning in both their minds. Who can outmaneuver the other one, right? Um, you, can, you can see that Jacob already has an idea of what he wants. The beautiful and shapely Rachel. I think, uh, my wife is not here this morning, but I think I know Jacob's sentiments here uh, regarding a beautiful Rachel, but that's a whole other point. Um, but still, you can see this conflict. Who's going to win out? You have Laban, you have Jacob, who's, as far as we know, the most a skilled deceiver. He gets what he wants, when he wants it, how he wants it. He controls events. But who is this Laban? So they have this very interesting conflict. Like who's gonna who's gonna win? And in fact, you know, the, the concept of wages that Laban introduces here is actually indentured servitude. So Laban's not necessarily proposing, hey, you can kind of hang out at my house or eat at our table. I mean, it's a it's a binding kind of agreement where Jacob gives up a lot to agree to what Laban's asking. And in a desire to increase the appeal, which um, finally uh, Jacob does kind of in the same way with Esau early on in the previous deception narrative, uh, Laban appeals to the family bonds. In verse 15, he says, you're a relative of mine. I'd hate for you to be here all this time without getting any wages. You can sense Laban building up Jacob's trust in him for the negotiation and underhanded deals that's about, that's about to go down. You have to admire, frankly, Laban's business sense. And, you know, the usurper Jacob gets an education uh, in sleight of hand. Really, he does. And it's it's very ironic. In the midst of, though, this transaction spanning from 15 to 21, we meet a new character, which is interesting. We get more information about Rachel, yes, who we've already met. But we meet Leah, uh, Laban's oldest daughter. Verse 16 of the text describes Leah and Rachel in contrasting relationship to one another. While Rachel was cer certainly introduced in the first scene of the story, she's not really described in detail beyond her family connections, which is what is important, the kind of building up of, of Jacob's, yes, I found the family I was looking for, I found the people I was looking for. And so Rachel's not really uh, you know, explained in, many other de in any other detail. Even more, Jacob seems actually a little more interested in Laban's wealth and well-being than he is Rachel directly uh, in the background material. But here in this section where the crisis unfolds, we learn that Jacob has fallen in love with Rachel in the past month. Apparently for obvious reasons, uh, she's gorgeous, is how the text describes it. The contrasting description, though, of Leah is a little less obvious to understand and maybe... Um, difficult to unpack, and scholars agree that the meaning of Leah's weak eyes, as the, the text I read this morning describes, is a little confusing and a little bit unclear. Um, whether this is a completely negative description uh, of something like blindness on Leah's part, or merely a description of a kind of gentleness of spirit conveyed through her eyes, there is a bit of an irony that's unfolded for us as readers of the text as Leah's eyes act as kind of a descriptor, a metaphor for Jacob's clear and determined sight, it's a foil. So Jacob saw clearly. He saw the well. He saw the rock. He saw everything he needed. 
And then there's Leah with these weak eyes. There's kind of a, it's the opposite. It's a foil for the confidence that Jacob saw in the background to now Leah's weak eyes and their inability to kind of see Jacob, Leah, Rachel, and Laban for the future that was about to unfold for them. Why is the initial outward appeal of Rachel's attractive figure um, contrasted with Leah's weak eyes? I, you know, we don't know immediately why that happens. Why, why do we get this contrast? These are questions we should be asking. Even more, why are we even meeting this older sister? I thought Jacob was in love with Rachel. And why do we need to know Leah? Who is this person? Isn't Rachel this perfect bride? I mean, Jacob has it all. I mean, even though he's kind of agreeing to pretty bad contract he's agreeing to, he's still going to get Rachel. Why, why Leah? What lies in store for this new, this new character? Why should we be interested? And how does this affect the agreement that's unfolding between Laban and Jacob? As quickly as we meet Leah, though, the story returns us kind of abruptly to the business at hand between Jacob and Laban in verse 18. That is, Jacob fully believes he's gotten a great deal, a solid deal. Uh, but in fact, he probably has been overly generous and naive in what he's offered Laban. Uh, the text describes Jacob's emotions as well as kind of a double indicator of how they affected his decision, likely. Uh, he was willing to agree to something that wasn't in his best interest, and the shrewdness of Jacob's behavior in previous narrative disappears. And it's almost a nod to how Esau was taken advantage of because of his emotions when Jacob robbed him of his birthright. So there's this ironic twist of events where Jacob becomes the victim of, of, of events that previously he had taken advantage of other people in similar, in similar uh, fashion. It's a true reversal of fortunes for Jacob. And it also incites pity. I mean, we always, I mean, he's in love with her. He's in love with her. He loves her so much. And we kind of feel this pity for her that's building, for him that's building. What could go wrong? I mean, love wins out, right? Love wins. What could possibly happen? And nevertheless, the years, as, as, as Jacob agrees to the seven years indentured servitude, the text also says his love was so deep for her that the years seemed like days. That's, that's like a great Disney movie, right? <laughs> the years seemed like days. He loved her so much. And it builds our anticipation for the wedding that's to come. Okay, maybe this will work out. Okay, he made a bad business deal. That's okay. But he still gets her. He still gets the girl in the end, right? Right. So we sent, do you sense this? It's building, it's building. Yet, all may not be well for Jacob's future, especially all of his plans for life with just Rachel. Um, yeah. After completing his service, Jacob demands his bride... And Laban's silence. So also when we read these stories, it's not just what's there, it's what's not there. Laban is silent. He says, give me my bride. Laban doesn't say a word. He just gathers all the people. And there's a sense that something's happening. What's about to happen? He gathers all the people. He gets everybody happy. And at this moment, in verse 23, we read this ominous line. But when evening came. But when evening came. And it's a narrative hint at the hiddenness and underhanded nature of what's about to happen. And when evening came, so arrives the moment the deceiver is deceived. It's a bit comical, it's sad, it's tragic, all of that at the same time. And Jacob consummates a marriage that he originally agreed to with Rachel, with the older sister, Leah. See the irony here? 
He agreed to something, underhanded nature of everything, and Jacob is now the victim of previous circumstances that he had controlled. Jacob's active participation in sibling, sibling trickeration comes back on his own head in a pretty, pretty painful way. He spent years, years laboring for Rachel and gets Leah. There's poetic justice. Uh, some would say he even got what he deserved, right? He listen, you, sow, you, you reap what you sow, dude. That's what, that's what happens. Uh, but the subtleties of the story that remind us of Jacob and Rebecca's deception of Isaac, the blindness of Isaac, and the darkness of the night, they're kind of these parallel notions that weave their way through the text. We still, we still feel a bit of sympathy for Jacob. You know, there's humor in the story, but there's tragedy. I mean, Jacob's deceived by his own family, his own uncle. It's a pretty low blow for a, a flesh and blood, as Laban used in this greeting to Jacob, a flesh and blood relative. You know, Jacob's initially deprived. Imagine the highs, highs, and the lows, lows that Jacob's feeling. He's deprived of the one true love he's had for years, years. You know, the Proverbs say, hope deferred makes the heart sick. I bet Jacob's heart was pretty sick and angry. And the text even reveals that. I mean, there's there's an exclamation. What have you done? I, I didn't agree to this, Laban. I agreed to Rachel, not Leah. But Jacob isn't the only victim here. It's also an important notion. Um, now is the moment. Remember, we met Leah briefly, then we go back to Rachel and Rachel and Jacob, Rachel and Jacob and Laban. Now we begin to wonder, okay, Leah was introduced. Maybe something else is going to happen with Leah that we don't know yet. You know, Leah is, is victimized by the deceptions of her father. You know, while there's no absolute indication of her level of involvement in this deception, cultural considerations make it safe to assume that she was commanded to participate by her father. And, you know, again, the text doesn't clearly, absolutely say that one way or another, but again, that's typically how things worked in, in this period of history. Regardless of, of the truth of that, Leah gains a husband who despises her. Everything about their first meeting is there's, they're building their relationship on the wrong foundation. He never wanted her, ever. The text never indicates that. Possibly Leah hoped that this kind of deep, passionate love she saw between Jacob and Rachel would maybe at least spill over into their relationship at some level. Like maybe the, the love that had blossomed between Rachel and Jacob would somehow maybe transfer at some level to her. Can you imagine how helpless she felt? She was completely wrong. That's not going to happen. She spurned, abused, used as a you know, chess piece by her father, shamed all her life by her sister's beauty, used and rejected by a husband who didn't want her. Leah's weak eyes, again, as I mentioned earlier, may indicate a kind of gentility of spirit. So she seems to be like just a quiet, average girl, longing for love and acceptance. I mean, that's, that's a terrible turn of events for anybody. So the bright start to Jacob's stay with his people in Padan Aram has turned really sour. 
really sour. His time away from the promised land, where he had, his people had been called, has been doubled. The bride he longed for used as a bartering chip to guarantee seven more years of indentured servitude. He goes from one woman to four. Um, an unwanted sister thrown in the mix. Leah and Rachel become pawns in Laban's coercion and deception. Whoa, whoa, whoa. What has just happened to us? I mean, this was all happy. This was great. What happened? And what's going to happen? How is this ever going to work out? How is this ever going to work out? And the, the text asks this of us. What has happened to this rich and joyful provision that we saw in the background? And how is this ever going to resolve itself? Well, our story re- resolves in the final verses of the chapter in a rather unexpected way with some unexpected players taking the central, central place in our minds. So scene three unfolds providence and procreation, verses 31 through 35, the resolution of our story. So while Jacob, Laban, and Rachel have featured in the first two scenes as the prominent players, filling various roles as hero, villain, foil, the final scene, the resolution of this crisis that we find in chapter 29 of Genesis, moves away from those characters, from Jacob and Laban, away from the beautiful, pleasing Rachel. The perceived means that Jacob sees, and the story kind of hints at, as the the avenue of God's covenant blessings. Instead, God and Leah, God and Leah, are revealed as the heroes of this story. In great storytelling fashion, the deception and hiddenness of Laban's actions provide a contrast to to magnify the omniscience and immense power and love of our creator God in verses 31 through 35. Does God know all things? Yes. God knows all things. Can God do all things? Yes. God can do all in his holy will. Jacob, Rachel, and Laban with their determination to shape events as they see fit with their beauty in Rachel's case the underhanded power plays disappear. They disappear. And focus moves to God and his covenant faithfulness. Verses 31 through 35, uh, our resolution, we'd like that to be the longest part. But like most good movies, it's the shortest part. You know, they live happily ever after um, in the fairy tales. This short section gives us, in bullet fashion, four births for us. Jacob isn't mentioned the rest of the chapter. Uh, not in conception. He isn't really mentioned in naming except for Leah's hope in verse 34 that my husband will be bound to me. He isn't even mentioned in the rearing of his family. He disappears completely. Wait a minute, I thought I thought it was Jacob who is Jacob's the central figure. That's what I mean. Whoa, 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 what's happening to us right now? Instead of Jacob or Laban or, or Rachel, God is the hero of this story. The resolution of the story comes through God's abiding faithfulness and maintaining his covenant promises despite despite man's sin. His everlasting kindness is poured out on the despised and rejected. In fact, Jacob's cunning and, and Laban's machinations pale in comparison to God's power. His place in this story guarantees all the promises made to Jacob. In fact, the story begins with Jacob seeing the story ends with the Lord saying, verse 31. 
What begins with Jacob overpowering a stone that no man could lift by himself ends with the Lord opening Leah's womb. As Yahweh chose the secondborn over the firstborn, the unlikely one, that is, in Jacob and Esau's case, he now chooses the unloved Leah over the loved and desired Rachel, the unlikely one. He permits Leah, the hated one, to mother first. The previous scenes have portrayed Leah as a helpless victim uh, of the masterful cunning of Jacob, um, the dealings with Laban. And in fact, Jacob met his match with Laban. Yet here, they they don't refill that hero role. They don't step back into the, they're not, they don't suddenly become good people again. In fact, our other hero, besides God, is, is a gentle woman. A gentle woman. It's not the beautiful physique of Rachel that brings God's covenant promises, but it's the fruitful womb of Leah. Interestingly, Leah never in all the Old Testament covets Rachel's beauty. But Rachel will come to a point where she covets Leah's womb. Are you seeing the kind of person that God chooses to use? The way God chooses to work? What does that mean for the children to come that we'll meet? Well, their, their births tell us an important story. Leah's first son, Reuben, uh, we, we receive, we note his birth in verse 32. And Reuben sounds like the Hebrew word for he has seen my misery. And it actually means see a son. And the narrative also provides a note that Leah longs, still hoping that Jacob will love her. But in fact, the way that it describes Leah as being not loved is not strong enough. It's kind of passive. So Leah's not loved. That's a kind of a passive act. When in really the word, in fact, the word that's used is, is more active. She is hated. It's active antagonism. Jacob willingly and openly spurns, neglects, take it, takes advantage of, and abuses his wife. Uh, you know, the text indicates physical intimacy, but I mean, because Leah can't conceive on her own. But this is a loveless, completely loveless marriage. She's a tool, a means to an end, source of carnal pleasure for Jacob. She's nothing to him. Yet, Leah still hopes, believes that something good will come. She has hope. Yahweh has seen my misery. And you know, it's the same noun, the same noun used here in verse 32 is of Hagar's plight in Genesis 16, where, where the angel of the Lord comes and, and helps her and preserves her and protects her in the, in the wilderness. You know, in both instances, then, the wife or concubine, in, in Hagar's case, plays a subordinate role to another wife, yet the result of Yahweh's involvement provides protection and peace for both. God subverts man's independent attempts to accomplish covenant promises on his own and, and preserves life and protects life and promotes and protects those who are despised. Leah's second child, Simeon, continues to reveal just how much Jacob hates her and how much she hopes um, that he will eventually love her. Simeon means he who hears. So Leah recognizes that God's blessing her womb she sees that God sees me, God hears. But yet she still longs for Jacob's love, and it, and it just won't be. And, and Levi, the third son, indicates this yet, yet again. Levi sounds like the word for attached. So when she says, now at last my husband will be attached to me, Levi sounds like the Hebrew word for attached. 
she's hated yet hopeful. But obviously, that's we know that's not this is not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Instead, the scorn seems to increase in their marriage. And then there's one final son who's born, Judah, wherein we receive the ultimate resolution of the story and the ultimate statement about what's happening in the story. Judah sounds like and may be derived from the Hebrew word for praise. And in fact, Leah, interestingly, doesn't mention anything about her terrible situation or her heartache or her hopes, but instead the focus is on Judah, which recall, King David, line of Judah. Jesus, line of Judah. Indeed, this is almost to indicate there is sorrow and there is heartache, but there is something to come where God might be praised. And we begin to see and understand Yahweh sees, Yahweh hears, Yahweh binds himself to us, Yahweh be praised. So having surveyed the contours of the story, the background, the crisis, and the resolution, uh, three points of application briefly here before we close. Um, first, look to Jesus, very simply, look to Jesus. And in many ways, this is a kind of a straightforward and, and maybe, I hope it doesn't feel overused because I don't think it can be in stories of the Old Testament. It's not a small point of application because if we're honest, the stories of scripture kind of repeat themselves anyway. I mean, same kind of deception, underhandedness, sinfulness, 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 hurt, heartache, pain, suffering. Uh, it seems to be a lot of the same stories retold, different characters. I mean, even consider this story, it's the same kinds of stories, underhandedness, deception, the kind of stories of the, even discovering the, the woman at the well. It's, it's all repeated. Why does this happen? Uh, you know, I think it's because this is how our life works, isn't it? Same stuff. Day in, day out, it seems kind of monotonous. Even our sinfulness, we seem to, str- to really struggle with just the same stuff. Why can't we get over this stuff? It's a continual reminder then that we need to look to Christ, who is the ultimate hero of all stories. We seem to act out of you know, sinful behavior, struggle with virtue, struggle to obey God's commands. You know, just as Jacob journeyed into a land of his enemies where he faced heartache, deception, abandonment, so the truer and better Jacob journeyed into the land of his enemies, facing their derision, their scorn, their rejection to maintain covenant faithfulness to God, bearing the new covenant in his body and blood as we will celebrate this morning. We are creatures of rhythm and what seems like dissonant and confusing noises as our stories don't seem to make sense, there is only one lasting story of harmony and peace. Look to Jesus. Genesis 29 ends with the birth of Judah and then stops. We're reminded that there is a finality in the person and work of Jesus Christ to all the confusion and heartache of our lives. It ends with him. He bears it in his body. There's also a second point of application that Jim mentioned this morning about providence. So rejoice in God's sweet providence. Uh, Many times, if not every time, (laughs) God's design to us seems strange, uh, seems very difficult to grasp. And that's no different here, but consider, 
Jacob stumbles upon a well that happens to have shepherds who happen to know Laban, who happen to be there when the beautiful Rachel happens to stop at the well, which happens to be within running distance to Laban's home, who happens to be very glad and welcoming to Jacob. There is still a positive sense to that part of the story and a clear indication that God is blessing and moving. It's an awful lot of happens there. You know, the years of Jacob's labor, they flow by. There is a grace in that, the seven years. They, they fly by. Uh, and I've already mentioned that make a pretty good romantic movie, Disney movie, right? God's providence is sweet. We serve a good God who, despite, of, despite our sinfulness, we don't deserve his goodness. He, has, he is good and kind and faithful to his people. Rejoice in God's good and sweet providence. But not only this, uh, and I probably should maybe have reversed these, but trust through God's bitter providence. Trust through God's bitter providence. God's providential care is both sweet and bitter. We have seasons of rejoicing in God's goodness, his faithful watch care that's obvious to us. But we also have seasons where we just are in pain. We don't know how to make sense of anything. It hurts to exist, to wake up, to go to sleep, to go to work, to care for our kids, to love a spouse, that doesn't, I, there are all kinds of difficulties that we live with. Leah's situation is very difficult to process. I mean, the Bible is pretty clear about the hopelessness of her life, but yeah, yet how often is that a description of our lives? We feel hopeless. Things are just plain difficult. How can anything could, good come from the heartaches of our life? We often, like Leah, know God sees us. We kind of know God hears us. But yet we hope in other things. We look for other things. We see act after act after act of God working, but what does it even mean? We still hurt. We're still in pain. Jacob never, never, read the rest of the story, never starts to love Leah. That's lifelong. It's a long time. How can God be good in the midst of that? Have we done something wrong when our life looks like that? Where is God? What is this that's happening to us? We must listen to the silence of Scripture here. Sometimes, because we live in a sinful, fallen world, pain will not go away. I don't enjoy saying that, and in fact, I probably our sentiments maybe are to reverse these points of application. Let's start with the bad stuff and then with the good stuff. Why couldn't Jesus have been the third point, Peter? Um, because often our life is just plain difficult. And that's our story, isn't it? Full of heartache and pain. Yet our story doesn't end with heartache and pain. We must also echo the hopeful names of Leah's offspring in the midst of our pain. We have a God who hears us. We have a God who sees us in our misery. And he has attached himself to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen. We need not look for attachments where we will only experience heartache and disappointment. We will only become the victims of deception and disappointment and misery. Returning to the first point of application, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. And praise the Lord for his marvelous work. So we've surveyed a familiar story. Jacob, Rachel, Leah, Laban, their marriage, deception. We've seen joys and heartaches. We've learned... We serve a God who is the hero of the story, of this story, and of our story, too. 
Look to Jesus, rejoice in God's sweet providence, and trust God through better providence. Let's pray.